Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, the space where I sit down with the world's most interesting people and direct to consumer. I'm your host, Tim. So we're back. <laughs> we're a little late, but we're back. This is series one of 2022, and I have the pleasure of sitting down with a select group of brands from across the DTC ecosystem to unpack how they're navigating what is turning out to be a pretty interesting and challenging consumer landscape. Before we get into it, I got a question for you. If you're buying something online, do you check the reviews? Of course you do, we all do. But what if the reviews are fake? That's exactly what happened to Toma Target in 2011 when he bought a camera based on shoddy reviews. He got stitched up with a bad product, so decided to do something about it. Launching Yotpo, our exclusive partner for this series. Yotpo makes it easy to get verified reviews from your customers and then display it on your e-commerce site and in your marketing, like social media ads. 10 reviews can uplift conversion by 53%, but 100 can more than double that. Yeah, that's big numbers. So if you're in e-commerce and want more customers, check out yotpo.com. That's yotpo.com. Enjoy the episode. Tom, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? Uh, thank you. Lovely to be here, virtually. I am very well. Uh, I am, where am I? I'm in the the kind of insalubrious edges of King's Cross at our office. Looking at, uh, looking out, it's very sunny, looking out on an insalubrious corner. Yeah. But yeah, it's sunny and it's summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was there the other day and we were discussing that. And uh, yeah, there was plenty of activity going on down that street. It's very interesting that it's kind of like just behind the kind of um, the King's Cross sort of like... Um, mega center of like new apartments and Dishoom and all that sort of stuff. And then I suppose it's probably a bit of a, uh, an exploration into the history of the area, right? Where it used to be quite industrial. Yeah. We just keep getting pushed further and further out. Like we're just down. I remember when I used to go many, many years ago, when I used to go, there's a nightclub called egg just on York way. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I used to, I'm, I'm, I used to, I'm, 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 have you ever been? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. Around, it, it's, it's pretty, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty if, out If there. you end up at egg, yeah, so yeah, different eggs and it's gone wrong. Um, but I remember like <laughs> go, go, going there and like I just it felt like it was the end of the world, yeah. so far away. Yeah, and like to think now our office is even further away. <laughs> We've gone past the gone past the end of the world. Um, I want to start by tr- sort of like exploring why you decided to disrupt a three hundred year old industry can you give me some insights god so like yeah so obviously we're a spectacles company um like i'd like to pretend that there was some sort of uh desire back from when we started to be like right we're going to take this industry and we're going to disrupt it like like because to be honest there wasn't you know there wasn't really a business plan there was really just the kind of idea that yeah i i, I wore glasses for a long time and i love wearing glasses and like i couldn't understand um you know, I'd, 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 you know, when I was a teenager, and I'd see people like you know Jarvis Cocker, and Pulp, and like Morrissey and the Smiths, and James Dean and Michael Caine, and like all of these kind of cultural icons with these amazing glasses, like thick, heavy rimmed library frames. They looked amazing, and I wore them confidently. And then, like, I'd go into some like high street opticians, and the selection would be appalling. It just, and it just all the same these little rectangular things rimless things that basically seemed to be like glasses for people that didn't want to wear glasses and um i was just like there's a massive disconnect here i don't understand that i don't understand why i can look at the you know my cultural heroes when these are made products and i can't get them and so that was kind of the the genius i suppose of cubits really and i just thought like 
well, we could do something that could do a bit better than than the dross out there. And yeah, that's what we've just continued to do, really. And you have got a pretty big split between like online and offline. Can you just describe that in a little bit more detail? Because you've got some pretty interesting, cool stores within London and around, um, but you've also got a pretty big online presence. So I'm keen to understand how you kind of think about those two channels. Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one, really, because we had like, we started as an online business, right, at the very beginning, back in 2013, because we couldn't afford a store. And I was shit scared about the idea of opening a store and signing a lease. And so we had a little e-com business built in Magento that sort of trundled along. Um, we then got a bit of seed investment and opened a store. And that kind of, and we found a store kind of worked for us in a much more meaningful way. Like, because I think, you know, when we originally built the site, we just built the site and then we're just like waiting for people to come to it. What we didn't realize at the time is we had to like find a way <laughs> to drive people there. Um, and so we opened stores and kind of learned how to open a store and run a store and design a store and all that kind of, that, that kind of stuff, do our exams. And, and then we kind of, really, it's only recently we've kind of come back to e-com. And so we kind of, it's funny when you see businesses and you can clearly see the ones that think in an e-com kind of way, all of their languages about CAC and CPAs and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And retail is just not like that, right? Mm-hmm. Re- re- retail is kind of much fuzzier. And so it's only really, yeah, the last two years that we've, you know, Obviously, this whole pandemic thing came around and we didn't, stores weren't so popular. So we, we've had to try and, I guess, get from a kind of four out of 10 to a seven out of 10 for econ pretty quickly. And now I think we've got this nice kind of hybrid view of the world where, you know, we, we're, we're pretty good at stores and like getting there at econ. And if we can ne- like nail those two things, it's, you know, don't want to use the word omnichannel, but I'm going to use it. But it, it does offer like a true omnichannel like yeah. experience. And that's really where I try to get to. But still, we are predominantly still a physical retail business, right? We're, 80% still comes from our stores, 20% through through e-com pretty much. And, and like we don't, we see that shifting a bit. I think the plan is to get it's more like two-thirds, one-third. Yeah. But like we, we really think that physical, you know, and old-fashioned in that, we think physical stores play a really important role. And, and are you seeing j- just in, you know, where we are right now, sort of like mid-2022, are you seeing more of a drawback into the stores after the pandemic? Is there a bit of a like valve that's been opened and people want to get out and about, or is it kind of similar to sort of pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, I mean, it's been like obviously the last two years have been like pretty tumultuous, but we've definitely seen. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when the you know when when the COVID restrictions have been released, like people have flooded back. It's been like mm. you know they bounce back like a rabid kangaroo it's been incredible like and you know i think particularly this year after omicron um just people started feeling like more confident and you know after two years being locked up they really wanted to um be around other human beings and so you know may was our, has been our best month in our history before that it was june uh, april um before that it was march and i fully expect that june will be our best month so yeah it has it has been really good and kind of reassuring i suppose that you know human beings are out there and want to get to physical stores and, you know, maybe buy a few products along the way. Well, it's a nice segue into, uh, and I know that you kind of started out as the kind of more uh, online brand and then switched to retail and now you're this hybrid or omni-channel, however we want to refer to it. And I'm curious about like some of the sort of tech stuff that you've got going on. So you've got like a virtual try-on feature, which is pretty pretty tech focused you know like so how did that come about like did you explore any of the other kind of like um spectacle brand try on feature type things the more physical things where you know you send them and and then they sort of send back the ones that don't want and how did you kind of come about 
the the sort of virtual try-on concept? Well, well, first of all, I'd say like along the way, we've sort of accidentally become a bit of a tech business, like not not planning to do so, but like a lot of the stuff we've ended up building ourselves, partly through kind of naivety and not really knowing how that you could go out and source this stuff. So things like the virtual try-on, we've, we work with a, a, a chap over in, in East Germany to like build this thing. Um, we've built a lot of our like backend systems, so we don't have like an ERP. We've built this um, sit, uh, platform uh, on an open source platform called um, Cilius. Um, a big thing we're doing at the moment is building this app, which kind of uses the depth, true depth camera in the latest generation of smartphones to scan your face and use machine learning algorithms to kind of recommend frames and customize them. And so, yeah, through through I guess yeah naivety we've we've kind of become a tech business like but the way we've always seen it and continue to see it is like you know technology is is a means to an end not an end in itself and i think a lot of people make the mistake that they think like the technology is going to solve a whole bunch of problems it's not it just kind of enables and facilitates something and like all of the kind of investments we've made many of which have been a disaster but you know hopefully some of them will be good are all about the idea of how can you try and improve the experience of people buying glasses online because i think you know what a lot of people what we realized from going from online to stores back to online is that what a lot of people have you know in our industry i hate the word eyewear but i use it as a shorthand what a lot of people have done is basically take this product take a pair of glasses or sunglasses and then just stick them on a website mm-hmm. in a like on on a plp traditional e-com right which doesn't all you're really doing is offering an inferior version of going to a store mm-hmm. um and, and and as a consequence a lot of the people have done the the eyewear brands that have done well online tend to tend to just trade on either convenience or offers discounts mm-hmm. all of that kind of crap and so and, and, and very few people have actually thought how can we actually use the technology whether it's e-com or or what or, or, or wider than that to actually improve the process and help people buy and own this product in a more meaningful way um and i think like to be honest the technology we've built so far is i think only at the very start i think it's a, like a mere moose bush in a whole like you know meal that we're, we're hopefully going to consume over the, the next few years because i think we're at this like, tipping point where people's expectations about how they buy stuff online is starting to change and what we want to try and do is use technology to do things like help and people understand sizing help understand their face shape help understand how they can care for frames how they can customize a frame how they can own a frame how can they maximize its life how they can send it in for a uh, reglaze or a repair and all of that kind of stuff um and yeah, I think we're, we're we're super early in that journey because we are like it, the eyewear industry is a really really conservative, slow moving juggernaut of an industry. So there's a lot more change to come. I think. Speaking of change, I'm curious to switch gears slightly and sort of talk more about the growth in the marketing kind of like uh, space. And <laughs> I'm wondering, like the iOS 14 update, how did that impact you guys? I heard some really really challenging things from brands and then some have obviously done okay so i'm like curious to see if you saw it as a major hindrance or were there any opportunities that kind of came out the back of it well yes it's a good question i mean first of all like i don't like facebook marketing like i'm just gonna <laughs> just put it out there at the front and to be honest i've gone out of my way to try and avoid this and i'm performance marketing more generally right you know, and, and in that, there's a whole bunch of um, personal 
conjecture that's kind of wrapped up in like legitimate stuff right you know i just don't like fake as a platform i don't like what mark zuckerberg's doing etc etc et so yeah. save that for another for another discussion like yeah. and so we've always sort of delivered we're not delivered we always tried to eschew spending money on facebook marketing and nearly all of our growth has come from our customers and our stores and even now when we ask people how they heard about us it's like 40% of friends' recommendations and about 35% are kind of walk past the store, right? Which is, I know, very, very old school. But, like, I actually think it's helped give us um, a really, really, really solid base and, frankly, meant that we're not um, we're not hooked on the opium of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. And so, actually, when the changes came around with I was 14, um, we weren't really affected because we weren't really, really spending money on, like, Facebook marketing. Yep. Um and so, actually, just from a kind of Schadenfreude point of view, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm sort of secretly quite glad that it's become a complete shit show, and you know, all these DTC businesses have had like you know, eight percent white off their value. Um, but like, I, 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 my problem with it as a as a platform, really, because is, is that it, it um, you know, it was always just one mark. I was feeling that too many people were treating it as the marketing channel, not mm. a marketing channel. Mm. And actually there's a real role for it, right? But it's got to be in a wider mix of kind of above the line stuff and brand marketing, kind of CRM and like all of this kind of stuff. And what people discovered is this, this short-term arbitrage experience, uh, opportunity where the cost of acquiring somebody for a period of time was less than their lifetime value. And yep. that kind of com combined with, you know, since 2008, the kind of, you know, pr global printing of money around the world, incredibly low interest rates, and the amount of private equity and VC money that's been pumping into, been pumped into the market led to this kind of, you know, absolute explosion in, in, in that part of the industry. And there's that fact that like 40% over a four, five-year period, like 40% more PE and VC money went directly into Facebook and Google. And like... What happened over time, like with any other channel, where there's that, that arbitrage opportunity gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it no longer makes sense. And that has just been compounded by the iOS 14 changes. So like, the, like I, I just kind of think like marketeers and the industry needs to just kind of go back to, I guess, a more traditional approach of how do you tell a brand story and how do you acquire customers in a sustainable way? And and that's really it, really. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with like um, – Facebook, but like I think they had a good ride, but I'm kind of glad it glad it's over. It's so funny you say that because you know, since I've kind of been in e-com for like six, seven years now, or maybe more, yeah, nine years, ten years, that concept has still been the same. Every event I go to, people talk about the brand story, the journey, keeping it simple. But I don't know why it sort of had sort of been diluted and now it's sort of coming back into the fold. Um but, but yeah. I do think what it kind of got hijacked a bit by um, that. I, I do think that combination of, of you know, Facebook emerging, but I, I do think the way that investment works in for, for D2C brands, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, you know, a realisation for me, you know, we've got a couple of investors and just thinking about for, for whatever reason, there became this kind of perceived wisdom that deep direct consumer brands were valued on like a revenue multiple not like a profitability multiple, right? Mm -hmm. And it tended to be for, for a fast-growing DTC brand, could be three times revenue, four times yep. revenue, five times revenue. So it created these incentives where if you spent one pound on Facebook to generate one pound 50 in sales, I would look at it as a kind of founder and think, 
that's a complete waste of time because off that one pound fifty, I've got to take off my twenty percent sales tax. Yep. I've got to take off my costs of goods, all of the infrastructure to fulfil that, and I'm losing money on each yep. one pound. One one pound I've spent one pound spent on Facebook is just resulting in a loss to the business. Yeah, yep. um, a private equity investor would look at it and think, well, actually, that one pound is generating one pound fifty, which at three times revenue multiple is generating four pound fifty. So I'm getting a four hundred and fifty percent return on my one pound. So Absolutely, I'm going to do that, and that's basically how the industry, a lot of the industry, has been run for the last kind of eight, ten years, and that's all now come crashing down. And you know, again, you look at if you just have to Google share price of mm-hmm. Allbirds, Peloton, mm-hmm. Warby yeah. Parker, and you yeah. see what's hap- happening to the industry out there. And like, I actually think it's a good thing and the right thing, and it's always going to happen at some point because what we're trying to build is like. A sustainable business and sustainable a sustainable business is one in my opinion that is profitable that is founded in you know building a really exciting product that customers really want and really really need and you know i don't it's more difficult to shortcut that and yeah i think that's a good thing you talked a bit before about like your acquisition kind of strategy and avoiding um zuck which we might get onto in a second a little bit more detail but like i'm curious to understand like at the moment like how do you look at acquisition versus retention you talked about finding a lot of customers through stores like what does the kind of retention piece look like for you and is it is it it sounds like it's quite important yeah i mean yeah because you look at i mean stores for us we love stores right we love these weird square these weird physical boxes made of bricks scattered Mm -hmm. around like london um because they are much more than um they're very difficult. It's very difficult to measure the intangible impact that a store has. Obviously, it's a way of selling stuff, and so you know, it, it, you know, people go in and they buy things. They give you money in exchange for the product, and then you have your costs, and you can work it out as a profit center and do all of that kind of calculation. But it's also a whole. It's a, it's a three-dimensional billboard. It's a called yeah. experiential yeah. form of marketing. And like as soon, as soon as someone sees a store, it says so much about the brand. If it's beautifully designed, if the team in it are brilliant and engaged and love what they yep. do, and yep. can offer like expert advice, like you just it's it, 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 it's amazing. And and like I say, you know, we are currently you know generally our kind of new customer old customer mix is about 50 50. Mm-hmm. and of those new customers, you know. About forty percent are coming from word of mouth, and thirty-five percent are coming walking through a store. So a store is not only creating, is, is acquiring customers, but it's creating new customers through word of mouth and future people, and and it, and it just continues forever. And you know, obviously, it requires a big cap- capital um, upfront investment. But once you've done that, the thing can kind of bloom and grow, and like become more profitable, and you know, and, and become well known. Whereas I think when you look at e-com, the, part, the, the difficult thing is it's kind of like the opposite and you have to be spending more and more and more money at a higher CPA to feed this beast. Mm, and that, like, yeah. if you cut the money off, the whole thing dies. Whereas with a store, <laughs> it can live without you. And so that's not saying that one is better than the other, but for us, stores have been a great way of both acquiring customers and then providing a kind of really convenient way for existing customers to you know, see our product and speak to the team. And it feels... That 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 desire like feeds into everything from kind of you know the way you think about the size of the store, location of the store, how it looks, yeah, the design, the team, how it smells, you know, what it looks like from the outside, and if you can get it right, it's it's, it's good. But yeah, it's hard, and it's just a very different skill set to to econ. I've learned. I'm curious. Then that's a really interesting point. Like, how do you go about that? Let's take the location as as an example. So, which one did I pass the other day? Cold Drops Yard, one and. 
super nice, amazing kind of like retail experience across the board, right? Retail and culinary experience. How do you guys kind of find where the, I mean, that might be a slightly different example because it's kind of more of a development, but like in a more traditional retail setting, like where do you guys look for the next Qubit store or how do you do that? Well, well, yeah, so it's super interesting. And again, going back to our, you know, starting as an e-com business, what I found like fascinating was, you know, you build an e- you have an e-com site, you know, set up your, your GA account or whatever, and then you have so much data. You know, at any point, the amount of people looking at the site, where they are, you know, click through rate of different sections. You, you, I mean, it's ridiculous how much data you have. Um, you then get to look at a store and there's basically none. <laughs> like the only data points are like, here's a physical box. This is what the rent is. This is what the rates, this is the number of square feet, you know? And I was like, okay, how, what's the footfall? How many people in the area? What's mm-hmm. the demographic mm-hmm. information? Mm-hmm. And there's basically mm-hmm. nothing. There's a few fragments. So it's, it's, it's amazing the contrast. And, and, you know, in those early days, a lot of this we tried to do is bring some of the empirical approach of e-com to stores. So just physically measuring the number of standing outside with a clipboard or a clicker, yeah, yeah, yeah. counting the number of people that go past you know, working out, seeing when they go into a store, what percentage of people come out with a shopping bag? <laughs> because I can tell you, are they browsers or are they actual shoppers? Yep, yep. And, and just through those little data points, you can start taking some of the, the framework of e-com and putting it into stores. And I do think it's kind of in, like, like interesting that, you know, human beings obviously have a tendency to focus on stuff that's easy to measure. And, you know, often forget or ignore, don't want to engage with stuff that's really diffuse and intangible and difficult to imagine. And stores are a bit are, are a bit like that. So now the way we approach them are really a comp- like a little bit of empirical stuff, but a lot of kind of like gut. Like, and when we look at a store, we have like a criteria of, I think it's 10 or 12 points that we always have to like mm-hmm. look at, which are a combination of, you know, who's in the area, but also physically what the store looks like. Does it have nice sight lines? Does it yep. feel happy? Yeah. Is yep. it yep. are there parking spots out in front of it? Like how big are the windows? Because our kind of thesis is that people, very few people walk past an opticians and be like, I tell you what I need to buy, a pair of spectacles. <laughs> but what they do do is that at some point when they think, oh, I, you know, shit, I can't see, I can't read the text, the subtitles on the TV, or I can't see that car number play or whatever. I probably need to buy my Ah, I remember that beautiful little corner spot in Cold Drops Yard or wherever. Um, I'm you know, Google that and then and then go there. And so, so yeah, I actually think we've got less opening a new store. We've got less quantitative over time than uh, we were at the beginning, and now it's much more about kind of gut. And um, but you know, the good thing is it it, it has better work because I do think finding that right balance between gut and data is the is often the, the the most important thing. And and one of my, again, going back to kind of Zuck and performance marketing, one of my critiques of it is there's too much data, which is often very spurious, you know, let alone, you know, before you start talking about the number of kind of acquisitions that Facebook will try and take credit for, like, mm. and it presents it as data that is, is factual, is actually, it's all kind of bullshit. And there's a whole bunch of uncertainty and there's a whole bunch of noise. And so, you know, basically, I think in summary, I would always value kind of gut feeling, gut feeling supported by data tested hypothesis rather than just being driven entirely by the data. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was going to be kind of like a question I wanted to talk about, but you, you've answered it already. And I think it's a really interesting concept because I think as humans, I've done some reading that we can do all the data 
mining we want, but we're pretty gut feeling oriented no matter what, you know, like the perspective of ourselves will always end up overriding whatever data that we've got in front of us. You know, you'll make the call based on something, you know, and it's usually not the data in front of you, although it's informative. I'm well, yeah, about- to tell you, what are you, what, what, what are you using data for, right? Like what is it to prove, is it to test a hypothesis or is it to kind of find, find an insight? And, and, and I do think, you know, you can get so caught up in, in the nuances of it and wait to the point at which you can't see the wood from the trees. Yeah. And like, it's like with all this, you know, all of the, you know, metrics around, you know, you look at, if you try, if you're trying to maximize a click through rate, you know, on a, on a performance marketing ad, you might, you better to put like, you know, you just end up having skateboarding cats or whatever, because they're always yeah. the things that are going to drive that, drive that engagement, drive that metric. But like, you know, the harder stuff is like all the intangible stuff that's quite hard to measure. It doesn't have a metric, which is what, what do the 99% of people that don't click an ad, what are they thinking? Yeah. How does this affect your perception of the brand? All yeah. of that kind of woolly fuzzy yeah. stuff, which is incredibly important, but hard to measure. My sense is that you guys uh, have got like an interesting kind of sense of humor baked into your content and the brand. Uh, there's like a cool thing on the site at the moment at, at the, um, there's like a, a toggle of like interesting information and facts that kind of like is rolling through, which I thought was pretty cool. Like how does that kind of come about and why do you think more brands don't do stuff like that? So I guess there's, yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. First of all, I think, I mean, when we when we first set up Qubits, the idea was for it to feel quite different to all of the other like iWeb iWeb brands. Sorry, I use it again. But like the problem with one of the things I always noticed about like iWeb is it's because it's a funny product, right? A pair of glasses is a weird thing because it's like a medical device that sits in the middle of your face. It's this strange mix of design, fashion, engineering, physics, optics, phrenology all combine this weird thing that has kind of roots as a, as a medical appliance. And so as a consequence, it's very um, earnest. And to a lot of people, the process of buying a pair of glasses is like going to the dentist. Mm. And like we wanted to kind of break away from that and still be authoritative because what we do is offer an incredibly important medical service, but, you know, also be um, kind of approachable and um, humble and slightly self-deprecating. And yep. so humor humor is you know a, a huge part of what we do and also the fact that you know for a long time you know when i was at school and people wore glasses you were the specky four-eyed kid right so <laughs> it is something that and that's why it always jars with me the idea you know when you see adverts for, for glasses a lot of glasses brands and it's sort of you know these hired fashion models who are kind of looking into the mid-distance and pouting while yeah. wearing this medical device that they never normally wear yeah, that doesn't yeah. have lenses in it because that causes reflection so the whole thing looks like a like a still from the Truman Show or something. It's all this weird <laughs> dystopian. And so injecting a bit of humour to, to, to just accept that, you know, this is, this is should be an approachable thing is really important. And I think the second thing, you know, to your point about the way we're trying to use language, it just always struck me that, like, you know, when people are kind of doom scrolling through Instagram, they spend, and people are, you know, doing all of these, 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 um, these shoots and create assets specifically for acquisition to go on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, they're always thinking about the images and like how many hundreds of millions of pounds are spent creating social content, you know, whatever, little gifts of scrolling through colours and all of that kind of stuff that you see every day. Like, and the thing that always gets forgotten is the other bit that goes with the image, which is the text underneath. 
And it always used to find it amazing that people will spend 25 grand on a shoot to produce this image. And then the caption underneath will just be non- nonsensical, badly written, um, lazily written. Yeah, copy. And it just seems absolutely bonkers to me. And so we sort of took the decision of like, well, actually, you know, obviously, you know, we're a very aesthetically driven brand and our creative needs to be good. But like, Mm. what Mm. also needs to be good is the way that we use the written word to Mm -hmm. communicate who we are. And so, you know, we we, we worked with a chap with Thomas Sharp, who's this brilliant, um, I don't know what he called himself, a poet, a writer, an author, um, who helps, I guess, crystallize that and put that into language. And like, I think the more... The more and more we do that, the more and more we realize that, you know, the written word is incredibly powerful and, mm-hmm. and here to stay and communicate a lot more ideas and a lot more sense of a brand than all of the cliched photos of, you know, a product shot next to a cup of coffee and a cactus. <laughs> the stock image of the, the cactus. Oh, yeah. God. Great. Don't get me yeah. started. <laughs> oh, driving mad. There's like flat lace, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, we, we touched on it just briefly before, but it would be remiss of me not to sort of like, um, explore it in a little bit more depth, but I'm curious, um, as to how you're thinking about the current macro environment. Um, I suppose, are you seeing any interesting data? Are you guys worried? Are you seeing opportunities? How are you thinking about it broadly? Um, wow, God, I mean, it's going to be... It's tough, right? That we're going to be, I mean, we've been through a pandemic, which is incredibly tough for any kind of consumer <laughs> business and any kind of business and any kind of person. But like, uh, yeah, it, it's going to get choppy, right? I mean, you know, obviously inflation's already at whatever it is, eight, nine percent. Um, I think it'll go much higher. We're probably going into recession. Um, is it going to be this year or is it going to be next year? It sort of feels kind of inevitable. Um, cons- you know, consumer confidence will get eroded by that, right? And so it's how we can kind of, I guess, shelter ourselves from 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 some of that. And it's and and also, you know, make sure that we've got enough money coming in so that we can pay off pay the pay the, the teams because you know, and that, that you know we can give people pay rises and all that kind of stuff because the world is getting more expensive. Um, so I think it's gonna it's gonna be difficult, but we're just gonna have to like sort of prepare now and weather the storm over the next twelve to eighteen months. But like I would say. You know, even given all of those great uncertainties, like I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in as much as it can't be more difficult than the last two years. I mean, the bigger question is like, what's going to happen in a few years when we have, you know, full environmental collapse and water shortages <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff, or, well, or, a- or when you know the US enters the war with Russia and we have nuclear Armageddon. So there's yeah, those things yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I feel there's a comedian, I can't remember what they're called, from the 80s, American person. Anyway, his thing was like, and this is like a, a you know, a logical thing which humans don't really think about, like the planet's going to be fine. We'll kill ourselves. You know, the planet, you know, the planet, <laughs> yeah. like the planet, it will, has survived, and, you know, an asteroid strike which you know, killed off the dinosaurs like it'll be fine you know it's going to hurtle along and get a little bit closer to the sun and then maybe disintegrate in a few billion years but like you know we'll kill ourselves many many many, many years before that but yeah i mean yeah i suppose existentially we could get very very deep but i'm wondering then as a slight aside but i thought it was interesting to sort of get your take on it what do you think about web3 more generally its application to direct consumer 
yay, nay? How are you thinking about it? I'm probably more nay than yay. I mean, I think, so I think there's something incredibly interesting in the whole idea of decentralization and shifting and, and the way that power systems like shift and like, and obviously all the stuff around blockchain, and Bitcoin, and, you know, there's something super interesting in the idea that, you know, you're shifting away control from some central bank, which may have a whole bunch of weird motives other than just kind of do what's best for the country or what do what's best, best for um, reality, humanity. Um, but I think the problem with so much of it is it's, you know, a lot of it is created these weird speculative markets and, you know, all the stuff around Bitcoin and NFTs, um, you know, I'd like 99.999% of people who are spending money buying NFTs and investing in Bitcoin aren't doing it because they think there's a great um, democratic argument for the shifting of power away from central banks or that artists should get paid more in perpetuity. They're doing it because they're short-term speculators. Mm -hmm. And that's my problem with it. I love the idea of the premise that underpins decentralization, but I kind of feel it has been hijacked by um, short-term speculators and the incentives. The fact is, you know, Bitcoin is you know deregulated, and there's so many like pump and dump schemes, and it's like I just think, yeah, love the idea, but like uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm highly skeptical about it. And then how that translates to like econ businesses, you know, I just don't think it's going to, in the short term, have a huge impact, right? It's just it's probably just going to go another, frankly, another payment method over the next few years and not much more than that. Yeah, you touched on an interesting point before, which I think is pretty applicable here, and that is like, is technology solving a problem or have we got the technology we're trying to shoehorn it into and create problems for it to solve? And, yeah, it's hard to see. And we'll separate the wheat from the chaff. Well, no, probably is pretty easy to see. I think the application within something like the housing market could be interesting. Somehow, yeah. like uh, reducing the pain of buying a house, which is incredibly painful, you know, feels like a, an interesting application of it. Um, and yeah, decentralization of banks, I think, is an interesting concept. But yeah, maybe too many tech bros are involved. That's the that's the challenge. Well, I think they are at this stage. But there's a, there's a class. I think it's again another kind of adage that I think is very true with all technology is that people, you know, we have a tendency to overestimate the impact of something in the short term, underestimate it in the long term. And you see it with so many bits of technology, you know, definitely after the smartphones, I'll be a lot around long, long before the iPhone, but they completely mm -hmm. changed everything. Um, but like, you know, 3D printing, for example, you know, when that, you know, popped its head up like 10, 12 years ago, and I yep. thought this is going to completely yep. change the world. And then it was like, oh, actually, all I can do is print out a three-dimensional miniature of my friend. <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck is the point of this? But I actually think, you know, it will play an absolutely enormous role in the future. You know, the idea of small batch add additive manufacturing, you know, that could be in everybody's home will be completely transformative, but we're just not there yet. Maybe it's going to be in 20 years time or 30 years time. Yeah. And I think yeah. until it finds that use case, and I think that's that's what Web3 is. Yeah, it would be like fascinating to see if it can find the use case that cuts through to actually change human behavior in a meaningful way. Yeah, I suppose AR and VR is another example of that, right? It's been around for ages and then suddenly it's had a bit of a rebirth. Maybe, yeah, Web3 is a crystallization of that piece of the the puzzle, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm keen to cast our eyes slightly forward. What does Qubits look like in 2025? Well, I need 25. So what's that three years, three years away? Um, 
we will be this similar. However, we will be more digitally focused. We will be more technology enabled, and we will be more international. Um, and that's our plan, really. So you know, we've got thirty stores in the UK, and we're very UK focused. Um, like I say, we're eighty twenty stores retail. Like what we really want to do is try and use ecom and technology to start sh- to enable us to reach customers in a way that doesn't involve you know taking out five year leases on physical squares in places where we know our customers are. And one of those is you know the rest of the world, <laughs> the rest of the world, right? We definitely have our aspirations more than this kind of grey, normally grey Brexit voting island. And like we really <laughs> think, and there's something, and there's something great about a pair of glasses, right? It's completely ubiquitous. It gets everybody yeah, yeah, in the end, wherever yeah. they are in the, in the world. Yeah. And so we really think we can use technology to help bring a the kind of brilliant experience that we have in the stores at the moment to, to that audience. And so we'll be bigger. We'll probably have more stores, but not that many more. We'll have a bigger team. So I mean, at the moment, our t- a lot of our team is tiny, right? I mean, our, our ecom team is currently two people to give people a sense of it. Abby and Natty, who I must give a massive shout out to. Well, that's happy nothing. Um, you're brilliant. Um, uh, and maybe that'll grow to four people, five people, maybe even six people. But like, we're not, we're not, we're not going to meaningfully change like who we are. We're just going to continue investing in the things that we think can help make a better customer experience. Um, so yeah, more more of the same, and hopefully for the point of you know, with the ultimate aim of being better rather than just being bigger, because like ultimately, I kind of think the growth is growth for growth's sake is a pretty futile exercise Mm. final question then um what piece of advice would you give to somebody embarking on their own brand journey oh that's a good question um what i would i guess maybe two can i get two things two bits give as many as you want yeah all right go nuts um one is if you don't have another business partner try and find a mentor or someone if you call them a mentor, you know, some people like eyes glaze over when you talk about mentors, but like, you know, somebody who you can trust, you can flow ideas around because it's incredibly lonely and hard. Yeah. Like starting yeah. business is, I mean, it's so much harder than you think it is. Like, honestly, <laughs> I, 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 it's a, it's an absolute slog. It's a war of attrition. Yeah. And there's times where you think you're going absolutely mad. So just having someone you can trust, whether it's a partner or a friend or a mentor, someone that's been at, doing it before yeah. and like and, and and i would say like hustle when you can find it i mean when i when we first started we were basically fucking about to get out of business you know i i came up with a list of people i wanted to speak to just to get their advice really and just cold emailed them you know and one one of them a bloke called nick, nick wheeler who runs charles tirrett shirts he replied within about five minutes and then has continued to kind of you know shoot the breeze with me ever since and has been a brilliant help and yeah. it just gives you that release really i think the second thing is um just accept that you're that it's it's better to make a decision than get the perfect decision because that's something I think there's something because you know when you get to school or whatever you're told that something is right or wrong um, and there's this kind of binary option and then you suddenly start a business and there's nothing there's not even a framework how do you even spend your time what do you spend mm. money on like mm. and you can get paralyzed with this idea that you're trying to seek the perfect how do I get the perfect website how do I get the perfect email and like actually most of the time it's just the question is is each time I'm doing it slightly better than the previous yep. time? Yep. And, and then just doing that over a long period of time. Because otherwise you get kind of paralyzed by these kind of pointless decisions like, you know, I don't know, what color what color should the top bar of the X be? Or what should, what should I have this packet of skips or packet of quavers? Or like what? And you just become, <laughs> and actually 
the, the only relatively small number of big decisions. So like, don't like, yeah, like sweat the big stuff, but kind of forget, like forget everything else. Um, third one, can I just go, like, Keep going. uh, like, like the most important like skill set you will have will be perseverance, focus and perseverance. Like you've just got to keep going when it gets really, really shit. Cause there's a reason why like, you know, or most businesses fail and like a lot of it is because kind of people sort of give up and you can, yeah. and you just got to like keep going through the shit bits. And, and I do think if you, if you have a mentor, it really helps. And if you realize that 99% of the decisions you make don't really make much difference, just the 1% that, that do matter. Um, that's when like, yeah, you can kind of get through it, but it's tough. I like that. So mentor, don't sweat the small stuff. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. And, and, and I also, this is the most like trite, cliched thing I've ever heard. Like, so I can't believe I'm repeating it, but like doing something you genuinely care about, like, yeah. Yeah, it'll make you, all that you, stuff you, you, easier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because if you can be like, because you just have to put yourself in thought experiment. Because, you know, a lot of people start businesses and it's like, you know, a bunch of them are like, oh, they see this opportunity and the gross margin on this product is X. And like, they really think they can make a business out of it. Like, and, and, and that idea of kind of the pursuit of, the like long-term reward is what drives people. But you have to put yourself in the thought experience, which, you know, we definitely had with Qubits, right? When that's completely gone and you feel the, the company is basically worthless and you're about to go, you're basically about to go bankrupt. Like, are you still motivated by the idea of doing the work irrespective of the financial stuff? Like, because that moment, unless you go and raise, even if you raise loads of money, that moment will come. And like, when you're staring that in the face and you're like, do I want to go to work to this morning? If, if because we are in financial ruin, if the actual core part of the work, like building a product that mm-hmm. you, um, you know, are building a brand, if you're not into that, you're kind of screwed. I think that's sage advice. And I think it's a good way to end the podcast. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tim. There you go. Massive thank you for joining us. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Yotpo, the leading e-commerce marketing platform to increase customer engagement, promote community advocacy, and improve retention. If you want to learn more, go visit them at yotpo.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time.